Amen. Good morning, everybody. We are in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you would turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. The ushers will get you one. Just keep your hand up so they can see you. We got one right here. Anybody else? Right over here. And while they're passing out those Bibles, I want to encourage you guys. uh, Yeah, like Bill was saying, just come... Love on the folks. Uh, we're about eight days out from our outreach. And uh, if you want to donate candy, you've only got like another week to donate candy. We have three barbecues. We still need two more. If anybody has a barbecue that they can bring, come see me. Because we, we got to get like five of them going to feed this community and to get those burgers and dogs out. So good stuff. Um, and then encourage you guys also too, as Bill was saying, uh, with... Uh, Duke Iona running for governor and Junior Tupai running for lieutenant governor. I'll tell you what, if we get them into office, it's going to be amazing because they're two solid Christians. And the one thing that our governor can do here in Hawaii that no other governor can do in the United States is he can basically appoint his own staff for the departments of everything, Department of Education, Department of Water, Department of Health. We can stack the whole heat with uh, Christians, and wouldn't that bring revival to Hawaii? Yeah, exactly. So uh, come out, show your support to those guys, and be praying, because uh, it's not going to happen without a fight. There's a spiritual warfare going on. We are in end times, and uh, people speak evil of good and good of evil, and it's just a crazy world, right? And which is uh, so appropriate that we're going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Last week we dealt with the rapture of the church, that it could happen at any moment. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and the neat thing is, wouldn't it be awesome if God came for His church while we were in church? Or being about the Father's business? And so there's nothing that needs to happen prophetically for Jesus to come. He could come at any moment. And when He comes and He takes His church out of here, then launches the tribulation period, what we call the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And it's called the Day of the Lord. So we're going to look into the Day of the Lord today, and we're going to, you know, actually let's back up to chapter 4, verse 15, and get a run at this. We're going to do chapter 5, 1 through 11, but we'll start at chapter 4, verse 15, because I love talking about the rapture. And I love the fact that he's going to come with a shout, the sound of a trumpet, and Corinthians tells us in the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than you can blink. And boom, instantly we'll be in the presence of the Lord, and boom, instantly we'll have new bodies. I think that's awesome. I need a new body. Mine's falling apart. He says there in chapter 4, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or have passed away in Jesus. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, raptured, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Can I get an amen? Amen. Father, thank You. Thank You. For Your Word. Your promises, Lord God. We believe that this is... Your word. We believe that this book is you. It's, it's, it's real. It's the word of God. It's the whole word of God. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us this book so we can learn more about you, that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of you, and that we could have the blessed hope knowing that you're coming for us. And so, Lord, open our eyes right now. Fill us all afresh that everyone here would ask right now in their heart, Lord, fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit. And give me ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. Lord, bless this time. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I love talking about the rapture. Paul loved it too. And even in Paul's day, the apostles, the disciples, they lived with the anticipation that Jesus could come at any time. Roman historians would write that the driving force that was in the early church was the fact that Jesus could come at any moment. That was an unbeliever looking from the outside in saying that the early church in Paul's time, the driving force was the fact that Jesus could come back. Because see, if you live like that, if you live like Jesus could come back at any moment, you will live for Jesus. Because if we knew He was coming back Friday, this whole week would change, wouldn't it? I mean, we would up our game. I, I know I'd up my game. I, I, I think you would too. We would go back to those people who rejected the Gospel and we'd share it one more time or seven more times. <laughs> we would go and fix wrongs that we had with relationships. We'd take everybody to lunch. Jesus is coming. We would love those that are hard to love. We would pour out our hearts to those that hate us and share the Gospel. And it's kind of sad to say that we so many times don't live with the anticipation that He could come today. And that today I'm just having a bad day. I don't want to talk about anybody. Stay away from me. Can a Christian have a bad day? Yeah. Can anybody have a bad day? Yeah. It rains on the just and the unjust. Unbelievers and believers have good days, they have bad days. We all go through tribulation. But what keeps our joy 
and helps us to get through the tough times is the fact that we know where we're going and whom we believe in and that he's able to keep that which we committed unto him. I'm going to heaven. Sooner than most of you. Right? I, you know, I mean, if, if he tarries, because I'm at an age in my life where it's like I could go at any time. And, um, and if I would drop dead in this pulpit while I'm preaching, that would be awesome. I mean, maybe it would be kind of creepy for you, but it'd be awesome for me. And I, I just ask you straight up, don't lay hands on me and pray for me to come back to life. My ministry would be done. I want to go home. I want to go home. It's like Paul said, it, I would, I, he would love to be with the Lord, but it was far better for him to be with the church. Because we've got a job to do. And you're here just to do one thing, and that's to reduce the population of hell by sharing the gospel to unbelievers that they might give their lives to the Lord and have true salvation, eternal life. And so last week we shared about the rapture, and I showed you so many scriptures. If you weren't here, get the, get the, uh, go down on the internet and hit the website and watch it on video or, or listen to it on podcast. Uh, I gave you so many scriptures to prove to you that the church does not go through the tribulation. I mean, Jesus said, love guys, men, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus isn't going to beat up his bride before the honeymoon. It doesn't make sense. And so now... As he's been sharing, because he, he, he shared, he, he's been talking about the rapture since chapter 1, at the very beginning of this letter. And, uh, you know, at the end of chapter 1, he said this. He said, uh, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us, us from the wrath to come. Hello? The wrath of God. Who delivers us from the wrath to come? Jesus. Faith in him. Chapter 2 at the end, he said in verse 19, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? At the end of chapter 3, he said, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. And then we just read chapter 4 where he tells us exactly what's going to happen. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. He's coming for his bride. He's going to bring us to heaven. And then chapter 5, he makes the statement that God did not appoint us to wrath, but up to, to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he mentions the day of the Lord. What's this day of the Lord? Well, it's spoken of all throughout the Bible. Some people take it lightly. They don't think it's a big concern, but it really is because there's people dying and going to hell. And they need to know that the day of the Lord is coming. And they need to get themselves right with God before the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord will be launched when the church is taken out of here. It's a day of vengeance. It's a day of wrath. It's, it's not something new. It's not New Testament. It's Old Testament and New Testament. If you're taking notes, God talked about this day of vengeance, the wrath of God, in numerous places in the Old Testament and New. So if you're taking notes, the day of the Lord appears in Isaiah chapter 2 and in Isaiah chapter 13. The day of the Lord appears in Jeremiah 46, in Ezra chapter 13, in Ezra chapter 30, in Joel 1, Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3, 
in Amos 5, in Obadiah 1, in Zephaniah 1, in Zechariah 14, in Malachi 4, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Peter chapter 3, and a lot of other places it's alluded to. So it's like, hello? God's been warning the world for thousands of years that there's going to come a time where sin will raise up to the brim. And He's going to pour out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. Where will you be when that happens? Well, if you're in Christ Jesus, you won't be here. You'll be in heaven. Because He's going to come and He's going to take His church and we're going to have a seven-year honeymoon while this whole seven-year nightmare is going on. Why? Because He loves you. And even in His judgment, we see the grace of God allowing opportunities for those in the tribulation to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They'll be beheaded for His name. They'll be killed. Or they'll have to hide themselves. The 144,000 will be sealed. They'll be preaching the Gospel. Angels will be preaching the Gospel. The two witnesses will be preaching the Gospel. So you see the grace of God even through the tribulation as He keeps turning up the heat on every judgment. It gets hotter and hotter and hotter in hopes that unbelievers would just kind of tap out Okay, you win. I give up. I want to be saved. Remember the day you tapped out? Remember the day you stopped fighting Jesus? I remember when I stopped fighting Him. I said, okay, Lord. I give up. You win. And He said, no. Now you win. I take this stuff serious. This is the Word of God. I take it very serious because there's a lot of scholars today that don't take it serious at all. There's a lot of liberal scholars and the problem we have today is that the church is lukewarm. Most churches just want to teach on fluff and sugar and spice and Jesus just loves you and that's great. I love that too. But when I come to the tough stuff, we're going through it. There's no hesitation. That's why I tell you, read ahead. If you don't like what you read, don't come, because I'm talking about it. And people get offended. If I haven't offended you yet, you don't come very often. <laughs> it's not that I'm trying to. It's that the Word of God, the cross is an offense. And God loves you so much, He wants the best for you. And if, if you read His Word and understand His desires for you, you're going to grow in the grace and knowledge, and you're going to prosper in Jesus. Because He loves you so much. But I find that there are two groups today when it comes to the Bible. The one side, the liberal side, says that the Bible is metaphorical. It's not literal. It's a typology. That's crazy. And then there's another group, which I'm in, that believes the Bible is literal. That what it says is what it is. One group will tell you that this book right here contains the Word of God, but it's not all the Word of God. And so they will tell you what is the Word of God and what is not the Word of God, and they will pick and choose what they want to believe and what they don't want to believe. I, I think that's horrible. This is literally the Word of God. This book is the inerrant Word of God in the original languages. It has never been wrong. Hello. 
Study carefully. Go back. Read the Old Testament. Look at the Old Testament prophecies and see why this book has never been wrong. So when it says things are going to happen, when I, when I hear about you know, the, the New Jerusalem, when I hear about the heavens with, with these cherubims with four faces and wings with eyes all over them, I'm, I'm expecting to see that. When it says Elijah went up in a fiery chariot, I believe he did. I believe there was really a flood. When I look at, when I look at kingdoms, that Daniel prophesied over hundreds of years before they even came into existence. And it happened just as the Word of God said. That's amazing. Show that to an unbeliever. That'll rock their world. How about the prophecies of Jesus? Crazy how many He fulfilled while He was here. I mean... They prophesied he was going to be born in Bethlehem. But nobody showed up. Isn't that crazy? You know, I marvel at, um, I read some historic writings about Alexander the Great. Now, remember when Daniel prophesied of the great empires, Babylon? He was, he was in Babylon at the time. They were in the 70-year captivity. And then he said he told the king of Babylon that the next group would be the Medes and Persians. And then the next group that would take over the world would be the Greeks and then the Romans and then a mixture of Roman and man and, you know, a whole thing there. When Alexander the Great was moving at a fast pace to take the world, he came to Jerusalem. And when he came to Jerusalem to take Jerusalem and Israel, the priests came out all clothed up in their robes and they came out to meet him and they brought the Word of God and they showed him in the Bible where God prophesied that he would take the world. And he was so taken back that it was written hundreds of years prior that he, he gave sacrifice unto the Lord and he spared Jerusalem. When Israel got smoked, Jerusalem, in 70 A.D., by Titus Aspasian. God had prophesied that that was going to happen. And they wiped out the temple. Remember that? And the people were scattered. It was called the Great Diaspora. They wandered and wandered and wandered. But the funny thing was, was Isaiah was prophesying that they would lose their nation and wander, but one day they'd be a nation again. So the people of Israel were dispersed throughout the world they had no Israel it was gone and so scholars were pondering this well how can this be I mean it says that they will become a nation again but it's been like 2,000 years and it hasn't happened and so that's where replacement theology started to come in where the church was saying oh the church replaces Israel the church is Israel no it's not Israel's Israel this replacement theology that's going around is ridiculous. It's not true. Israel is Israel, the wife of Jehovah, the Father, and the church is the bride of Christ. They're two different groups. So they're like, well, how's this going to happen? So when this replacement theology came in, there were scholars that took their ground and they said, you know what? The Scripture says that Israel will become a nation again. It's got to happen. And on May 14th, 1948, 
Israel in the day, like Isaiah said, there will be a day they became a nation again. Wandered around for like 2,000 years. Isn't the Word of God awesome? The Bible is literal. The day of the Lord begins when the church is taken out. And as soon as the church is taken out, then comes the tribulation. A seven-year period of judgment of God's wrath being poured out. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back with His bride. We're all riding horses. And every eye will see. It's called the second coming. And He's going to come and He's going to wipe out evil. And there'll be the battle of Megiddo where the enemy will be wiped out so heavily that the blood will rise up to the bridle of the horse. It'll be Lake Megiddo with blood. And then God will throw the Antichrist, the false prophet, into the lake of fire. He'll cast Satan into hell, chain him up for a thousand years as he sets up his kingdom reign, a thousand year millennial kingdom reign. And he's going to refurbish the earth like in the Garden of Eden. And he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And we're going to, we're going to rule and reign with him as the church. But there will be human beings being born during that time. They're going to need to give their life to Jesus. And, and God will rule righteously, a righteous king. And everybody will prosper. And at the end of the kingdom reign, he'll loosen Satan. And Satan will organize a rebellion. People will actually buy into what Satan is saying. We can take this place. Crazy. You're in the most perfect environment being ruled by the Creator of all things, God Himself. And you're going to think Satan's going to offer you a better plan? But there will be those that will rebel and they'll come up at Jerusalem and the Lord will let them come up real close and then they'll smoke them all. Cast Satan in the lake of fire. And then what happens? He wipes out the heavens and the earth. There's a great whiteout. And the great white throne judgment happens right when He does that. And the dead are given up from hell. They're, they're, lifted, they're delivered up and from the sea delivered up. And all those that reject Christ Jesus will stand before the true and living God and give an account. And He will judge them. And, and there'll be those who will say, Lord, Lord, I knew You. Lord, I, I, I did things in Your name. I cast out demons. I, I went to church. And He said, I don't know You. Depart from Me. I never knew You. You can't just come to church and get saved. That doesn't make you saved. You have to come to church and in order to get really saved, you have to give your heart to Jesus Christ. You have to turn from your ways. You've got to ask for forgiveness. And when you know that you're a Christian is when you do blow it, your heart breaks. Because you just broke the heart of the One that loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. And that's how you know you're, you're of Christ. But if you think that you're going to make it to heaven by just coming here and sitting, and that's kind of like a big, you know, like, Lord, I just gave everything back. I went to church. I listened to that idiot speak for an hour. Boy, that was punishing. But, you know, you know <laughs> you're worth it. There's going to be people that think they're saved that don't make it. There's got to be a true transformation. It's important. And He will judge those at the great white throne judgment seat all the unbelievers that rejected his gift of salvation and then he will cast them all into the lake of fire and satan will be there and the antichrist and the false prophet and it's forever and forever and forever and then you know what he's going to do he's going to do the unthinkable right in front of us in front of us he's going to do genesis 1 1 
He's going to say, you see the playing field? It's all white. Look at the canvas. There's nothing there, right? Here we go. You ready? You ready? Hold on. And he's going to speak a new heavens and a new earth into existence. And a new Jerusalem. And so shall we be with the Lord forever. This day of the Lord, it's a, a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. It's a time of Israel's trouble. It's the final week of the Daniel 70 weeks. You say, well, what are the Daniel 70 weeks? Well, let's go back and look at them. Go to um, chapter 9 of Daniel. After Jeremiah, after Ezekiel, after Isaiah, you come to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Say amen if you're there. I still hear pages. Okay, here we go. Look at verse Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Now remember, Daniel's in captivity in Babylon. He says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of the people of Israel. i got to just pause right there for a moment. There's three people that are never, sin is never spoken of. Jesus, of course, Joseph, and Daniel. There's no recording of, of Daniel and Joseph sinning, but look what Daniel's saying. I'm confessing my sin. He understood he was a sinner. And the sin of the people of Israel. And presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in a vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening oblation, the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you the skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, your prayer, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Did you know you're greatly beloved? Praise the Lord. <laughs> therefore consider the matter and understand the vision here it goes 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city now weeks in the old testament is spoken of as there's weeks like there's seven days in a week but there's also weeks of years one week if you say a week of years one week would be seven years do you understand that so if they say you know if, if two weeks from now, if they're speaking in weeks of years, that would be 14 years. Does that make sense? Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To what? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for the iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to the restoring and the building of Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city. And the sanctuary and the end of it shall be with a flood. 
until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's speaking of the Antichrist, and it's speaking of the final week, the 70th week of Daniel. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Wow. That's good stuff. Now, let me try to help you to understand it a little better. The 70th week of Daniel deals with Israel. Gabriel made it clear. The 70 weeks deals with you, Daniel, and your people. That's not the church. Daniel never even knew the church was coming. The church was something that was hidden from the foundations of the world. The Old Testament believers didn't even see it coming. It's talking about Israel. It deals with Israel. Weeks of years. 77-year periods which totaled up to 490 years. It says that Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt in the first seven weeks or the first 49 years. At the end of 49 years, Jerusalem was rebuilt, the temple was rebuilt, and then, he said, after that happens, 62 more weeks or 434 years Jesus will come at His first coming. So, 49 years and 434 years make up 69 weeks or 483 years to the day. Daniel prophesied that, that when the temple was rebuilt, then it would be 62 weeks and the Messiah would come in and and he would come in, and it was to the day. 483 years to the day. When did Jesus come at his first coming? It was Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, when he came in as a king to be worshipped. But the nation of Israel rejected him. That's why when Jesus rode in, he wept over the city of Jerusalem, and he said this, if they would have known this thy day, it would have been different. They would have received him. And everything would have been different. And, and all those Pharisees and Sadducees and all those scholars who prided themselves in the Bible, they weren't studying their Bible enough to know that Daniel prophesied Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday to the day. And that was the completion of 69 weeks. And we've been on pause since then for 2,000 years. Isn't that crazy? Why? Because Israel rejected Jesus, salvation went primarily to the Gentiles. The birth was church. The, the birth was church. The church was birthed at Pentecost. And the church at large today is primarily Gentiles. It's reaching the whole world. But there's a lot of Jews that have gotten saved. Don't get me wrong. Salvation is for everybody. 
And so the church of God has been nestled in between the 69th and the 70th week. Remember, Israel is the wife of Jehovah, the wife of the Father. The church is the bride of Christ. And when the rapture takes place, what does it do? It ushers in the 70th week of Daniel. It's not for the church. So you ask yourself, so when is this all going to happen? Well, didn't we read about that last week? We said no man knows the day or the hour. But we do know the times and the seasons, don't we? So why don't you turn to Matthew 24 and let's look what Jesus told his disciples. Matthew 24 is an amazing chapter where God tells the people about what's going to take place in the tribulation. He also records it in Luke 21 and Mark 13. But in Matthew 24, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, speaking to His disciples, kind of gives them a right hook to the face. (laughs) Verse 1 says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came, came up to show Him the buildings of the temple, and let's just stop there for a second. So they're all psyched about the temple. Jesus, man, look at the temple. Isn't that, that thing amazing? Now remember, these are Galileans. So they only come up to Jerusalem like three times a year, mandatory. But every time they come up, they're like blown away. The temple was like one of the wonders of the world. It was beautiful. It was magnificent. Arrayed in gold and ivory and, and uh, you know, marble and all, all kinds of jewels and cedar. It was like, it was mind-blowing. And, and the disciples are saying, Jesus, check this out. Oh, gosh, isn't that amazing? What do you think about that? And Jesus says there in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you that not one stone shall be left here upon another and shall not, that will not be thrown down. He just gave them a right hook to the face. They're all jacked up about the temple, and it was like they just got sucker punched. He took the wind right out of their sails. Why is that? See, because to them, the temple was the very place that they would come to connect with God. And if the temple was wiped out, how are we going to connect with God? Little did they know the God they wanted to connect with was standing right in front of them and would die for their sins and ascend into heaven and send the Holy Spirit and they would become the temple of God. So when he said this, they kind of you know, took the wind out of their sails. But then check this out. Look at this. Verse 3. So basically, he he left the Temple Mount. He came up through the the Kidron Brook, and he went up to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, and they asked him three questions. Check this out. Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming? That's very insightful, isn't it? And of... The end of the age. When's this whole world going to come to an end like we, we know it? Those are three heavy questions. And Jesus answered and He said unto them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in My name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Isn't it happened already? How many have ever heard someone tell you that Jesus is here? Like that He's come back. Okay, a few of you. 
I mean, you might have those people that knock on your door on Saturdays. They'll tell you. Well, they won't, they won't tell you. You've got to pry, pry it into them a little bit. Pry into them and, and, and ask them, you know, their truths. Actually, the Jehovah Witness, they believe that Jesus has already come back. He's actually in Brooklyn. There are those that say he, he's, he's come back and met them in secret chambers. And, and Jesus covers all that in the Bible. It says, don't believe any of that stuff. Because when Jesus comes for his church, he doesn't step foot on the earth. We get called up into the clouds. Jesus doesn't step down on this earth until the second coming when he sets up his kingdom. So if someone tells you Jesus is alive, because how many of those cult guys we heard that they were claiming they were Jesus? He says, don't believe it, right? He said, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Does it sound like this is what he's telling him when you start seeing these things, I'm coming soon. So have we been listening to rumors of wars? Okay. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence on the earth, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. So he says when you start to see these things, it's the beginning of sorrows. That means he's coming soon. He's going to pull his church out. See, we don't know the day or the hour, but we know the times and the seasons. This is the beginning. Of sor- I believe we're in the beginning of sorrows. I think we're in that time. I really do. Look what he says there. He says in verse 7, for nation will rise against nation. The word nation there in Greek is ethnos. When you see ethnos rising against ethnos, I'm coming. What's that mean? When you see racial groups fighting racial groups, I'm coming. Boy, have we seen that more than ever? I mean, people get really upset when you say all lives matter in this country. Because there's so much racial hostility like never before. And kingdom against kingdom. Now, that would be like countries. Political kingdoms will be warring like U.S. with Russia or Russia, Ukraine, or China versus us or North Korea. That stuff's going on. They're talking about nuclear war right now, guys. I don't think they're going to pull it off because Jesus says, I'm going to burn the earth. But they could make a mess of things before that. And then he says, and there will be famines. Well, we got that going on, don't we? And then he says, pestilence, diseases. Now, it's, it's crazy because when I look at these, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, I look at sort of like these are man-made things. I, I, you know, I, I think I can prove some of them, but when it comes to pestilence, I'm not sure. But look at that. Racial groups fighting racial groups. That's man-made. Countries fighting countries. That's man-made. Famines. There's no, there's, you know why there's famines? Man-made. It's political. We've got enough food to feed everybody on the planet. We choose not to. Political, political reasons. Guys, did you know that in our country that the government would sometimes pay farmers not to grow? What do you do for a living? I don't grow corn. 
I get paid for it. We, we used to do like uh, these outreach things. We'd get all the, the pastors and their wives and the families together. And we'd have like a meal at, a, at one of the hotels and we'd do that all-you-can-eat buffet thing, you know. And everybody would eat and then I'd go back up to the, the buffet and there's a lot of food left. And I'd, I'd say to the helpers, the servants, can, can we get that to go? And they said, no, you can't, you, we, they don't do that. And I go, well, do you guys get to take it home for your family? They said, no. And I go, well, what's going to happen to all this food? Well, they're going to throw it in the trash. And I thought, how ridiculous. You could give it to us. We could give it to an organization or feed the homeless. You could give it to the employees so they can have it for their family. But you can't do that. you got to throw it away. There's famines in this world because it's, it's all pol- politics. And then pestilence. Now, I, I can't prove that this is man-made, but it could be. And earthquakes, natural disasters, like a woman travailing in birth. Natural disasters have been increasing over the years. Jesus says, I'm coming. If you look at the earthquake statistics, it's like an average of 55 earthquakes a day, some 20,000 a year, and over 17 of those are over a 7.0 magnitude. I remember an old Baptist preacher saying, the reason we're having more earthquakes is because hell's enlarging. Crazy. I stopped and thought to myself, what's the best way to bring the world to its knees? To usher in a new world order, like the Bible says is going to happen. Well, you've got to wipe out an economy. You've got to wipe out everybody's economy. And pestilence. Why do I say that? Do you know, you know, the WEF, the World Economic Forum, wants a one-world rule by 2030. That's seven years away. It's coming. They're trying to usher it in. Look how our country, our country's been being destroyed. Our economy, everything wiped out in just two years. And I know some of you get upset with me for saying stuff like this, but it's true. See, you can't push a one-world rule by going to each country and going, hey, how would you like to be communists? I got a handful of guys. We're going to run everything. We'll tell you what to do. Everybody go, forget you. Get out of here. So they've repackaged it. They call it stakehold. What do they call it? Stakehold um, capitalism. So you don't think it's communism. But it's communism. So if nobody's going to get on board with them being a, a communist country for this one world rule, how do you make people become communist? You collapse their economies. You wipe them out into a place where they have to get help by the government, and that's when the government steps in and takes over. I watched a pandemic bring the whole world to its knees. It was the smartest strategic thing that could take place in order to cripple the world to become a one world 
rule. And it brought us all to our knees. And for the first time in the history of the world, the entire globe was locked down. And what happened? People lost their jobs. Their jobs were considered non-essential, and they lost their homes, and, and everybody became government-dependent, and economies collapsed worldwide. Hello? They got seven years to get everything into place according to their calculations. We're in crazy times. But here's the sweet part. Jesus is coming. He says it's going to get a little nutty. Hang on. I got you. Going to bring you through it. You just give the gospel to everybody you can. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let me get back there. He says to them, after telling them about the rapture, he says in verse 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so shall come as a thief in the night. What is he saying? He's, he's encouraging them all through this letter that Jesus is coming for them, that they're going to be taken out of this world, and as concerning the day of the Lord, he goes, I don't even need to write you these things because you know. You know you're not going to be there. It's going to come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night to who? Unbelievers. Not to you, but to unbelievers. And then he says there in verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Wow! Peace and safety. Who is considered the threat in the world? You, you as Christians, you probably say ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, militant Muslim groups, Muslim terrorists, right? As Christians, we'd probably say that. But we're the threat. You know, you know what's funny is our country turned its back on Israel. You know what's even funnier? That we support groups like Hamas. We support Iran that wants to... We've, we're giving Iran money so they can build a nuclear weapon to blow up Israel. Now, it doesn't say that, that that's why we're giving them money, but that's what it's all about. We, our country has turned their back on Israel. Isn't that crazy? Nancy Pelosi, I, I'm going to get so much trouble for this because... She claimed that Hamas was a humanitarian organization. Remember in the God's Word it says that they'll speak evil of good and good of evil? We're there. <coughs> the world sees Christians and Jews as the threat. The Quran, the Muslim Bible, says kill all the Christians and Jews. Kill all them of the book. They don't hide that. That's what, that's, get the, we're the problem. So check this out. So when the rapture takes place and we're gone, they're going to say peace and safety. Wow. Those stinking Christians and Jews that were bugging us and causing us so much trouble, they're gone. Finally. We can rest. Peace. Safety. 
You know what's funny? Is that the new age group today is trying to embrace extraterrestrials, UFOs. It's a big UFO thing, right? And they go, like, you believe in extraterrestrials? I go, I think what you're talking about is demons and fallen angels who lie in the stars. And they say, oh no, you know, they're going to save our planet and they're going to save us. And, and if we embrace what they're saying, then we will become like them. But if you reject what they're saying, you'll be removed. Rapture. When the rapture takes place, they're all going to go, see, see? These guys, they cause trouble. Boy, I'll tell you what, they fought us tooth and nail. Boy, finally, peace, safety. And he says, and when that happens, sudden destruction comes. The tribulation begins. Now think about that. If you've got 8 billion people in the world and the rapture takes place, let's just say, I, I'm, I'm going to highball it. I hope it's even more, but let's say 2 billion people go up in the rapture. That leaves 6 billion people. Right? That's going to rock the world, right? We all disappear at once. Flying planes and trains and boats and cars and trucks. There's going to be disaster. They're going to say, finally, we got them out of the way. And then Jesus, right in front of us, is going to open up the, the seal judgments. Right in front of us. Revelation 5. He's got the seal. Revelation 6, he starts to open it. When the seals are opened, a quarter of the population is going to be wiped out. So now it's gone from 6 billion down to 4.5 billion. By the time the trumpet judgments take place, another third of the population will be wiped out. The earth will be down to 3 billion people. And then the bold judgments, and we're going to lose a lot more. We don't even know. It doesn't even count how many. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be like labor pains as a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape the wrath of God. Unless they ask for forgiveness and to be saved. But their hearts will be hardened. And the Lord says, you're not going to stop this. There's no way. It's like a, it's like a woman in labor pains, right? You've seen some of the pregnant women in here. I don't even have to tell you they're pregnant. You just know. What does that mean? Baby's coming. We just had a new grandchild like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. Water broke. Baby's coming. No, it's not coming. Oh, it's coming. Nah, not going to let it happen yet. No, it's happening. You can't stop it. That's what he's saying. You, you, you're not going to be able to stop this. The only thing that you can do is Ask for forgiveness, repent, and ask Jesus into your life. He says there in verse 4, we've got to wrap this up. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and the sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. He says, We're not of the night. He says, watch. He says, don't sleep like others sleep. He's, he's referring to be alert. We all have to sleep, but be alert. Don't be stupid to what's happening around you. Be alert. Be watchful. Jesus is coming. He says to be sober. He says, he says you know, those that sleep, sleep at night. Those that drink are drunk at night. He says, watch and be sober. 
he uses the, the term drunkenness because, you know, we think, okay, uh, you know, you, you're not supposed to be drunk. Can a Christian drink? Absolutely. Can a tr- Christian be drunk? No. And a lot of pastors don't want to say what I just said. But I've got to teach you the Word of God. You can't be drunk. Hello? And don't play games. Well, I, you know, I think I should drink more because I, I weigh more than this guy. And I could probably have, Stop it. You've got a problem. Don't be drunk. See, because when we think about drunkenness, and this is why he put it in here, when we think about drunkenness, we think about being under the influence of alcohol. What is God saying here? He's saying, I don't want you under the influence of anyone or anything that's not me. That's what he's saying. Saying, watch and be sober. I don't want you under the influence of the things of the world. I don't want you under the influence of the things of man. I want you totally under the influence of me. Be not drunk with wine, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Because when we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to do things for Jesus. Verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, as a helmet of salvation, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Verse 9 is the reason and the proof that the church is not going through the tribulation. He says, for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the proof. The word wrath there is a word that means indignation or punishment. This wrath of God comes from the throne of God on a Christ-rejecting world. It means indignation. It means wrath. It means punishment. Question, where was your sin punished? The cross. The Father laid upon the Son His wrath regarding you. You cannot even now be a believer on this earth and receive or have placed upon you the wrath of God. Theologically, it would violate God's agreement with Himself that upon Christ the judgment would fall. The church is in heaven when the tribulation goes down. Let me close with this. We look around and we go, wow, man, the world's falling apart. No, it's actually falling into place. It's actually falling right into place. Jesus is coming. We are out of here any moment. And we'll be with him forever. Amen? Father, we thank you um, just for those promises, Lord God. You are a great mighty, awesome God. And the fact that you could love us is mind-blowing. Lord, give us strength for these last days. I pray that we could up our game. That tomorrow would be a day that we served you like never before. And each day would be increased. And so, Lord, we can't do it on our own. And we don't want to do it on our own. But we ask that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit and give us the strength, the power, and the ability and the opportunity to serve you fully. 
If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, pray this in your heart. Lord, I believe You died for my sins on the cross. I come to You humbly, recognizing that You're the only way to salvation. I repent of my sins. Please forgive me of all my sin against You. I believe You died on the cross. You rose again. And I'm asking You to save me now. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that in your heart, you're a child of God. Go and live for Jesus. It's that simple. He made it so easy because why? Because He loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son for us that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now that you're a child of God, there's a lot of people that need to hear that good news. And so Lord, I pray over the congregation, this service, the next service, Lord, that these would be the lights that You would send out into a dark world to share the love of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.